Hey, what's going on? Welcome to another episode of Angular Air. I'm your host, Justin Schwarzenberger, and today we are going to be talking dependency injection on the server. Uh, we got Austin McDaniel with us, joining us as a panelist. Austin, what is going on? How's it going, guys? And our guest today is the one and only Jeff Welpley. Jeff, what's going on? Not too much. How are you doing, Justin? Pretty good, pretty good, pretty busy. Um, not maybe as busy as you, though, lately. You got a lot of stuff going on. No, no, no. I, I mostly stare at the wall all day. Uh, I think you, you're doing way more than me these days. I don't know. I, I noticed that you were on a, well, you were on Adventures in Angular a couple times recently, right? Uh, what were you talking about on there? You're talking about ng-conf. You were picking talks for that and then also something what? about your, your story. I was hoping that you, you wouldn't uh, pick up on that, that uh, I'm, I'm being a little bit of a traitor here to the show. But no, no, no. No, it, no, it was, not, not at all, man. Hey, more <laughs> Angular content, the better. We love everybody over there. It was actually just a coincidence that um, you know they had asked me to join the ng-conf committee to pick talks. And so we had a show about talking about us picking talks, which was I thought was kind of interesting. And then again, by coincidence, Chuck had asked me to join him for his Angular Stories um, line of podcasts to dive into like my background and how I got started in coding and all that type of stuff. So that, that one was actually really fun. I mean, they were both great, but uh, yeah, I would recommend checking that one out. Chuck and I uh, reminisced about you know many stories of yesteryear. Yeah, so uh, Buddy and I and I were just actually talking, wondering what was your background in code? Like, have you always been doing JavaScript? I mean, I probably should just listen to the episode, right? But um, can you give us a quick rundown on what did you? Was it JavaScript all the way, or did you start with another language or several languages? Yeah, no, I mean, I think unless somebody just started coding like recently, um, they must have had something else in their background because JavaScript just was like such a garbage language to develop in, you know, more That's than like mouth. five years ago. Yeah, it still is maybe. Yeah, you could argue. Um, but no, no, I, I, I started off with a heavy Java background and, and um, later .NET. So uh, .NET, Java for like five years and then .NET for another like six or so um, before I joined the dark side of JavaScript developers, you know, around 2012 or so. I mean, like, like most people, um, Obviously, using regularly using spaghetti JavaScript code back in the day to just angrily trying to get in some client side validation and that type of thing, but actually using it as a craftsman um, has only been uh, re recently and uh, mo mostly once you know Angular came out and started becoming more of a real thing, I sort of jumped on that and building um, you know bigger and bigger applications over time. And then, of course, as we got TypeScript, right, that kind of brought it back full circle to the ability to use some of those skills from Java and .NET um, over into the client side with JavaScript. Yeah, it's the thing is that I, I think the people that don't, I, I mean, I totally get um, people that either don't like TypeScript or are just at least like hesitant with it if you purely come from either the JavaScript world or a scripting la uh, language um, historically that you don't aren't used to like typing and that type of thing. Um, but honestly, for people that have their base foundation with Java or .NET or any of these other typed languages, uh, TypeScript just feels so good. It, it, it just um, is so much better than um, you know untyped JavaScript once you get used to it and get over some of the, the little annoyances with type definitions and that type of thing. Um, but no, no I, I think that most of the people that I know that have gotten over that initial hurdle of getting you know, set up and understanding how to use typing, um, it's mostly positive with like a couple of small annoyances you know, that uh, come up from time to time. And then of course, with that TypeScript, now we've got this opportunity to maybe explore more things like better dependency injection inside of Angular, which now we and JavaScript side, which now we come other oh, something else that we did on the you know Java and .NET side that now we can have available to us in JavaScript. Yeah, I mean, when when you think about uh, DI, and, and this is another one of those things that depending on your background, you either hate DI or you love DI because I I mean you can 
it's not hard to find articles, especially from you know React land, just uh, really hating on dependency injection in particular. And actually, I shouldn't even just say React. I, th I think people that have a purist view of like uh, JavaScript functional programming uh, see DI as like kind of a not the right abstraction to for managing dependencies. But I, I think. People that again come from you know especially a Java background where you know DI is, is a very normal thing and people are used to that. It, it again feels good both for being able to test your code effectively as well as manage your dependencies. For me in particular, I think it's been even more than that because I've always been interested in the whole isomorphic JavaScript thing and Universal um, Ingo Universal building that. So that the concept of you know, multi-platform development sort of requires that you are able to effectively manage your dependencies um, so that you, you can run uh, the same type of code on both the client and the server. And that's like just a core competency of, you know, being able to live in this kind of multi-platform world. So playing devil's advocate here, wouldn't you say that, you know, I've, I kind of wrestle myself with this, like, do I really need dependency injection in JavaScript? Because JavaScript implements like what they call a service locator, which means basically like when you find the file and you, you kind of initialize it and you, you can return out something new, right? And you don't ever have to worry about that. Like that will always be that new instance every time you require that file, right? So you really don't have to have dependency injection to accomplish that pattern-esque, but then when you get into writing your test and, you know, mocking and things like that, then you have these libraries like Rewire that, like, go under the hood and, like, repath all your files on the fly, and that gets really dirty. And so the, I can see, like, when you start getting into testing and and then when you introduce TypeScript as well, you, you kind of have to at that point, though. Um, you can't do the rewiring or anything like that because it's expecting a certain type at the runtime compiler. And if it's not there, it's going to error. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, so let's say um, two, two things with what you were saying. Um, you know, first is that if, like, let's say I was to take the contrarian view and, like, sort of the... I'm a purist on the functional programming side of things that DI is kind of an aberration. Um, everything you, you should manage your dependencies by is just passing them in through simple functions. I, I think that if you were to look at a non-trivial code base, so like a, a fairly substantial code base where you have um, you know, some level of uh, complexity and, and levels of abstraction uh, that, that are needed, you'll often find, you know, with the pure functional view of things that they still have to come up with certain patterns to be able to manage things. You can't just have everything as a black bag of functions. Um, oh, you could, but it ends up being really messy. Like, uh, you know, I, I think the, the people that try to remain too purist about it, they maybe haven't had um, really large uh, code bases that they've had to, to manage. And because on the simple, simpler, um, smaller, uh, pieces of code, then sure, it's it's relatively simple to you know keep everything, um, you know, not use anything like DI or whatever. But um, like, let's say you're in the in the mindset of just passing everything in as function parameters. I would argue that when you really take that to an extreme, what you end up with starts to look a lot like the Angular to DI, anyways, because you end up having these. Uh, you know, functions where you are passing in all the dependencies similar to, I mean, the only difference really ends up being that we're using the class structure, like the the, the structure of a class and, and a constructor to pass in um, those dependencies. But otherwise, if you squint your eyes with, you know, a large functional programming based uh, code bases, it sort of looks like DI anyways, um, to some degree. And then I completely forget the second part of what I was going to say, because I was too long winded. So rewire. Yeah, I think we were talking about rewire and how TypeScript. Kind oh of yeah, yeah. So so as far as that goes, I I I don't necessarily it, that stuff is like possible and that's great, but like I'm not as into some stuff like that because it gets to be too confusing, like you're saying, um, from the developer's point of view. Like I I, I use 
DI mostly like yes for unit testing like uh, isolated instances, but when you try to take it to too much of an extreme where you have kind of I, I definitely don't prescribe to like the some of the aspect oriented programming mindset that was in like the the Java Swing days where you would have like a configuration file where you would like set um, you know switch out your dependencies on the fly and that type of thing like that. I mean, anybody who's worked in some of those Java Swing apps that that knows like how much of a nightmare that can be as well. So I, I, there definitely is parts of this that can be bad. It's not all. Um, this isn't the ultimate solution, regardless. Like you do have to have some amount of discipline around it. So let's actually define that. Like, what are we talking about when we're talking about dependency injection? And maybe just like quick. Benefit like what are the benefits of that? Why why do we want to adopt this pattern? If somebody doesn't know what dependency injection is, why do they need to? Why, why is it important they learn it? Yeah, well, uh, before talking about dependency injection, I mean, let's just talk about dependencies, right? Like, what are dependencies? And at the end of the day, it's it com comes down to the fact that at, at a certain point when you're building an application, you can't just have one module. Like, you're going to have multiple modules, and one module is going to need another module. Uh, now. Obviously, there there is the basic ability to pull in another module through you know whatever module system you happen to be using, which obviously everybody now is using the ES6 module system for the most part, and so you can I mean just in terms of referencing that module that you don't need dependency injection like you can use one thing can use another. Um, yes, obviously on the Node side it has common JS, but but most people and. If you are not using a transpiler, then that's that's what you're using. But, but more and more people are using, you know, a transpiler, uh, whether it's TypeScript or Babel, to and they end up using the ES6 module system. But in, in any case, so you, you're you're able to reference this without DI. Where DI comes in is allowing you. I guess it's it's two things in my mind. One is for testing, uh, makes it easier to switch things out. It's not that you can't do that with, um, like Austin was sort of alluding to. You know, using certain things like um, you know, Webpack, for example, you can leverage uh, the ability to switch out um, the uh, you know ES6 imports. So that, in a way, does the same thing. But again, it's one of these things that's not as not as clear, perhaps, for the user. Uh, but I, that is still used in in it's useful, definitely, in certain circumstances. And then the other thing. Um, is when you for something like uh, pla building platform agnostic code, so an agnostic. So like, if you are in the mindset of trying to build something that runs in multiple locations, very typically you'll have something where downstream the downstream dependencies at the leaf level are different on different platforms. So caching, for example. So caching um, on in the browser, you have you use local storage, right? Uh, in just for the sake of argument, let's say we're using local storage on on the server. You might use Redis. Now the interface to both of those things is the same. It's just get and set with certain objects, but the actual implementation is different. So when you you're thinking about um, working in this multi-platform world, it's very useful to have DI as well because then you can uh, the Angular DI specifically because it allows you to build against a specific interface. Um, and then change out the implementation depending on which platform you're running on. Yeah, and I, I like to, when I describe it, I like to focus on talking about um, the inversion of control, right? And the idea that like you're taking something and you want to give it the things that it wants to work with rather than it newing it up. And we really talk about like inside of your code, you want to try and avoid calling new and creating new things and instead giving it the things that you want it to have and then getting that benefit of it can receive something that's like a singleton that, that's one instance of that that doesn't really have state or maybe it does have state across your app and and now these are things that you can invert that and become dependencies into your thing so your code can use that without having to worry about the management of it and that becomes a lot easier from a scope so where you have multiple things that want to use that one service, now they all don't need to new it up. They're just given one to work with. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I do think um, one thing you touched on that reminded me um, to mention is that although I, I really like the concept of DI and, and the way specifically Angular has implemented it, um, which is why you know I've sort of brought that to the server side and to the, even my API as well, um, 
the one thing that that we stress in in our own code base is not actually using inheritance, not using because the structure of uh, the Angular DI, you know, it, it leverages classes and um, you know it uses the constructor of the class to actually. Um, make add for like the sugar for how you actually inject in your dependencies. Um, but the temptation I have noticed from people using it is to do more traditional uh, OOP programming sometimes with inheritance and, um, you know, more complex um, abstractions like tr you can you, there's, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble with some of the stuff that they provide. So like I, I actually totally get why some people are, are hesitant. Um, but I think if you do place um, strong standards around, you know, okay, there's no going to be no inheritance. We're, we're only using classes for essentially typing and for DI, like as the tokens for DI. We're not actually going to new up anything ourselves, you know, basically. You know, if you have like those types of rules in your code base, I think it does help because then you can still bring in some, not all, some uh, you know, fun functional programming mindset, um, even though you're doing it in the context of these you know, class structures. Yeah, it's that composition versus inheritance you know, discussion, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, trying to f still favor um, composition. Cool. So. Um, <laughs> You know, we talk about DI as a pattern. So now, obviously, in Java, we touched a little bit about this in JavaScript and the concept of like, there's really not this DI pattern. So we're making it on our own. Angular has its own implementation of that, right? Um, which typically with a, a DI pattern that we're used to in maybe like Java or C Sharp, you have this service locator concept and this registration, and you got to actually write those bits, right, as you're building this thing out. And in Angular, we don't really see that. It's kind of taken care of for us, right? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, right? I mean, we, we, we do still do have the providers that we're um, you know, passing in, and yeah, it, it's hidden away, I guess, uh, to, to some degree, like, um, but, you, and I think, the abstraction has gotten better and better as Angular has kind of like gotten the Angular 2 and 4 and everything have started to get more mature. Um, but I mean, it doesn't mean you don't have to think about those things. One of the things when you are working in this multi-platform environment is, uh, you know, making sure that during the bootstrap in each of the different environments that you're changing those providers because that's where, you know, at the very start of the process is where you're switching out what those things that are platform specific, you know, switching out them, um, you know, right up front. So you still have to have to manage it to some degree, um, but maybe just not in the same way. I, I mean, I, I personally think it's it's the right balance the way that they have it right now. Now it does get a little tricky, right? As we start talking about ng modules and we start thinking that people have to kind of have an understanding of, okay, when I do that in my main module that I'm bootstrapping and, and my entry module. Then I've got these providing these services and this dependency injection of the singletons that are available across the board. But now I've got routing and lazy loading. And what does that mean? When do those come in and how do those mix into the whole thing? And then you even got all the way down to the component level in the metadata and you have a provider's property for that. You can put something in there. And, and so there's a little bit of understanding the dependency graph of what's going on that you need to know when you start registering these things essentially, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that the one thing that actually makes the story um, nicer, even better on for your like APIs that you don't have to worry about those at all. You know, on the API side, it's just one, there is no lazy loading. There is no, you know, multiple modules. Uh, I mean, you might bring in multiple modules, like if somebody you're bringing in somebody else's library, I guess. But uh, for the most part, it, it's, the mental model I've I've found on the API side is is simpler than it is on the on the uh, either the browser or the web server side of things. Cool. So um, you touched a little bit about why we'd want to do this on the server. It's this you know ubiquitous universal type of concept of your code the same everywhere. So what else like why why do we want to put this dependency injection over there? 
Well, in general, I, I mean, part of it is is the the benefits that I, I just mentioned, but but then another part of it is just this um, consistency and not having a context switch. I, I I've noticed that certainly, I'm more good uh, people that have experience doing development over time get used to some of these you know switches like that whether it's a major switch like between different like completely different languages or even like different code bases that have different best practices or uh, standards within each of them you know like I think we're used to um, over time adapting but that doesn't change the fact that it's it is nicer and it feels better when there is consistency across, the more consistency there is, the more things seem familiar, the less mental overhead, the better you are able to kind of like process things quickly. At least that's what I've found. So at least part of it for me, in addition to those kind of two benefits of, of testing and the multi-platform development is the consistency thing of just, you know, um, making it easier for developers. And we're talking about your, using this in code that you want to do like services on the server side, right? We're not necessarily talking about prepping, doing like angular server side rendering, but we're actually talking about like microservices or other types of services that you're writing to run on the server, but you're using this pattern over there, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, like the, the rendering on the server um, is a subject I'm going to cover for and we can, I think we might have a future show that's been pending for a while to like talk about the latest uh, universal changes. But but yeah, we're talking about specifically a, a microservice or you know an API of some sort where your uh, you know the output is JSON. Like it's 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 something traditionally that uh, you know backend developer kind of works on, which which is weird to think about that you're talking about using you know, Angular libraries for backend development, but um, that's sort of what it is. I mean, you're not using the renderer, but you're using a lot of the other pieces around it, meaning um, not only, I, I, you know, we're talking a lot about Angular DI, but also zones is a big part. Um, and, and I could talk about that if, if you guys are interested. I, I think Austin loves zones. <laughs> Me and zones have a very love-hate relationship. I, I would be curious so that, to hear about your take on zones for the back end. Yeah, so the primary um, use of zones on the API side is maintaining user context across asynchronous activity. So typically, if you have a call to the API and you at the, let, let's say in the express level, you know, where the very top level of the request, you have access to the request object and that request object is user specific for that request. But typically as you start to render or, or um, you know, call to the backend databases and, and actually um, eventually generate, usually typically JSON or whatever it is that you're returning from that API call, um, you don't necessarily pass that request, you could, but you don't necessarily pass that request object down through the call stack, you know, all throughout what you're doing. And so inevitably you end up in your know, utility functions or a bunch of other stuff, which doesn't have the context of the current user. And, and unlike in the browser, you can always get that context because there's only one user, right? So you can have a, a singleton that gets from local storage or the cookie or whatever else who is the current user and, and they're or just have it in memory or whatever but you can't keep it in memory in the api because there's all these you know thousands of requests simultaneous requests going on right so zones helps to maintain the individual requests and to have a uh, essentially properties that you can set on the zone for that specific user at the very top of the level so right when the request comes in you know in express you actually set the you know, this is the registered user and other stuff related to that particular request. And then at every other place ac across um, further on down the call stack, you can just um, reference zone, zone.current, and get that property back. Um, and so it is a, it feels a little bit hacky, I, I think, uh, but it, it does end up being, the, the thing it prevents, I guess, I guess is, um, just the ugliness of having to either pass that user context down through the call stack or pass back up a callback function so that it has access to it. it somehow you have to get access to that user context. And I found that um, using zones makes it cleaner in 
many cases than the alternatives. Interesting. I wouldn't have thought about using it for something like that, but yeah. So I'm trying to picture what this looks like, right? And I think you can get into some demos here and I'll actually show us. But like, so I'm writing some, are you writing this stuff in TypeScript and to execute like with Node? Are you, what are yeah. you doing there? Yeah, so basically, I, I'll, uh, let me share my screen and I can show it, but it it's basically looks like Angular code. Uh, it's just without without the component, basically. So so forget about the component side of things, user interface, um, but basically everything else that you do, so typical services that you create. So let me... Let me ask you this. Now, yeah. since you're running it in... Um, on Node, you're running TypeScript, you said, and you're running it in Node. Are you compiling every time you save, or you are, or are you running it in memory? Yeah, I mean, uh, like I mean, TS Node or Babel Register, what they do. Yeah, I, I, we are using just TypeScript um, TSC W to just kind of keep on um, regenerate. Actually, there, there's a um, I forget the exact chain that we use, but it, but it does like restart the API server and whatnot whenever. whenever um, uh, I, I think we use it. It's called concurrently. So like you can um, run multiple pro, uh, like watchers at the same time, and so it, it will watch for different levels of file changes. So like there's TSC that's watching the TypeScript files change, and that like updates it. And then um, Nodemon is uh, watching the JavaScript, the compiled JavaScript, um, you know, underscore build directory. And whenever that changes, then it like restarts the um, API server. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Since it's, uh, my question was, you know, there's, you can do, uh, there's Babel Register, and there's also TS Node that we, a lot of us use oh, for yeah. unit tests and stuff like that. Could you, since you're kind of doing this on in Node and you're not having to ship any code down to the browser, you could kind of run it always in memory and not have to worry about watching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, sorry, I misinterpreted your question. But yeah, I hear what you're saying, and that, that totally makes sense. I, I've done that on other projects that I've worked on, um, but I think, just because we're used to transpiling anyways. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I guess I've, I've never thought of like that it's that big of a deal to choose one or the other, but we, we still do constant kind of transpilation and have it running off of the JavaScript rather than using the TS node thing. But yeah, I mean, that works as well. I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that at all. So. Cool, you want to show us some stuff? Yeah, okay. All right, so. <clears throat> um, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but I, I, there's a couple, I guess, concepts that I want to try to um, get across. So this is a typical, um, I, I mean, we say interfaces, but it's not like actual interface. It's like more like an abstract class, or th this is what is the token, the main token for a particular thing. So we, we build a lot of times um, to adapters and, and the main um, adapter is ends up being the token in the eye, which we override. So for this one, super simple. This this contains an in-memory cache here. So I mean, just pretty easy to grok this, right? Um, now the thing is with this and the other adapters, um, we use, I think it's a similar pattern that I'm sure you guys use. I've seen a lot where there's index files at each level of all of our projects that roll up both, like all the exports, just to make it easier, you know, so that um, from the adapters directory, you can um, you know, easily import any of the specific adapters. But then also, um, it's important to like roll up these actual constants that have you know, all the adapters that will eventually be put into um, the dependency injector, which I'll, you know, show shortly. Um, but th that's the main concept is that you have your uh, services and they all get rolled up both, you know, for exports, but then for the actual provider array. And so then um, you see so have this and then you like, let's look at an example of a actual um, implementation. So... Da -da -da. Uh, yeah, let's do local storage. Oh, actually, that one isn't implemented. 
Um, yeah. So uh, this is for Redis. And so um, it has the actual Redis implementation. Obviously, there's some stuff below this that's being used. But similarly, um, for the specific implementation, uh, there's an index file that is also rolling up all the adapters, right? So if we go to the top level to where um, the actual API gets started, the key part is, um, so this is where the API is getting started. And you know, so there, there's typical polyfills, just like you have to do in the web server and the client side. There's polyfills here uh, for reflect metadata. This is actually so, um, sorry. Uh, you know, on, on the API side, you know, you need this to be able to do DI because this exposes the constructor types, uh, the constructor um, types to, that allows DI to be to used with classes. Um, and then uh, zones I mentioned that we'll use, which I'll show in a second. Um, but the first thing I wanted to point out is like, okay, so we br bring in these providers, right? So let's actually go to that. Um, and it's just like roll, it, it's all stuff that's been rolled up. So from each, these are our individual libraries. So we have different libraries with different stuff. And the main point that I'm trying to get across here is just, um, you know, using the index in each of the different folders and each of those different libraries, like everything gets rolled up into a set of providers. And then those providers get imported here and um, exposed to, to finally here where we create this top level injector. So like Angular will create the top level injector on the browser side when it's bootstrapping. Um, that's what's happening kind of underneath the scenes. So, but I mean, we're not actually doing, we're not calling Angular bootstrap here. We're, ju we're just using the injector, the reflect injector from Angular core. So we have to explicitly call resolve and create and pass in all the providers. But otherwise, this works exactly the same. And so this injector basically is used throughout the entire API, or, or rather, I mean, I guess more accurately, accurately saying, like it um, gets the um, appropriate instance, and there's, it's just the um, chain of dependencies uh, get automatically instantiated because it's under the same injector. So let's actually dive into this a little bit. So um, let's go to actually. So I mean, we're using Restify, um, but and uh, you'll see that. Right here, we're pulling in the server to start, um, and and again, it follows just a basic interface. If we go to, it went to that, but um, I mean, the basic abstract class that's used is kind of the top level interface for a server is really simple. It just says start, right? Um, but if we go to our RESTFI implementation of it, so it's start with a particular set of options. Um, and so the, the interesting part to talk about is for, I mean, the start server is pretty straightforward. It's what you would expect from any sort of RESTify implementation other than, I, I guess, this part, um, whenever we're starting the server, we, are, we do an init initialization of, like, typically a middleware. Um, so in um, this implementation, we're making sure that all the middleware runs first. It, typically, Express will do this for you. So like, if you're used to running Express, like Express usually runs all the middleware for you. But what I did is basically um, took over that because I wanted basically Angular and DI to be used for everything. So there's mostly because if you are using DI for everything, then you can kind of eat more easily switch things out and whatnot. Um, so instead of Express running the middleware, you know, I'm, I'm explicitly you know, running all of the middleware. And then it's, uh, you know, it's just starting the server. And that's it. But if we uh, switch back actually to 
um, the request handler. So for individual requests, this is the sort of more interesting part of this. Um, let me dive down a little bit. So what's happening here, and um, and also in addition to TypeScript and DI, you'll notice that like I'm also heavily utilizing observables, which is like, I mean, obviously people, tons of people use observables outside of Angular, but I feel like if you, if you had to describe like the Angular stack, um, these are all things that are familiar now in the Angular world, right? So we're like bringing all these things to make, you know, create these consistencies just in the way in which you program, you know, across everywhere. And so everything kind of is an observable, just like how people are starting to do on the client side on, in the browser applications as well. So um, I have a question about that. Yeah. So um, one of the things when we were looking at it, we were trying to decide what we want to do for our back end stuff, if we want to do Node or if we want to do like .NET, that sort of thing. And one of the things we ran into with Node as we were doing that stuff is like, when we started thinking about using third-party modules and stuff, it kind of felt like there's a lot of stuff all over the place in terms of how they implement it. Like a lot of, a lot of stuff around promises, right? Mm -hmm. And then some other stuff around some different approaches. And so, in this, I mean, you're really you're controlling that. So you have this whole set, like you said, with the observables, with this dependency injection. You kind of establish this framework that now you can put bits and pieces into it in the same pattern. Have you run into including another library that's not something that you wrote that you had to like? bootstrap into here in some way to, to fit into this pattern? Do you run into that or has that not really been a problem yet? So good question and uh, actually something I probably should have mentioned before I even got too deep into the server request here. So as a standard practice, any external library that ha has to be used in here, um, we have a, a very particular way that we wrap it. Um, so we actually have, you can see on the, like, the left side here that we have like all of these adapter um, uh, folders. So each of these are is for a particular type of downstream dependency that basically utilizes various external providers. So essentially we create this common interface and, and a, a specific way of wrapping it so that it exposes. So we, we never utilize in the main main part of the code base, like the actual backend APIs or the actual front-end apps even, we're never directly referencing like Redis, let's say, or um, Mongo or anything like that. It's always through this, this uh, you know, wrapper that sort of abstracts out some of those provider-specific things and makes it easier for it to use with observables and all that type of stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally, totally. And, and you didn't really run into any issue. Everything kind of fit well so far in terms of like converting that to an observable. You, well, yeah, I, I mean, so the, what I found is that if you wanted to expose like the create a like for like, like essentially create a interface that has the exact same functionality as the underlying provider, then yeah, sometimes there's some annoyances, but most of the time we sort of create a uh, interface that has a subset of functionality. And in that way, you can kind of control it more. Um, that like, yeah, it still gets annoying. I mean, I guess sometimes, but uh, nothing that we haven't been able to overcome. Um, but it helps because you you aren't trying to, like it would be different if I'm trying to publish a library that is basically the observable version of this other library. In that case, then you have to like expose everything, right? Um, but but when you can kind of cherry pick and just pick out the exact thing that you want in the way you want, uh, it makes it a little bit easier. That's really cool. I like that. So um, there's kind of two major things here. I, I know this is uh, maybe a little bit dense of code here, but there's, there's sort of two things going on. One is like the processing request, um, and, um, and, it, and it occurs in the context of this subscribe and zone thing. So let, let me actually dive into this actually. Uh, what did I move this? Sorry. Oh, yeah. Oh, 
That's why. Okay. So this is does like the zone magic, I guess, that I was I was referring to. Um, so basically, every single request, if we go back to here, so um, this is an observable for um, basically the, the request being processed. And so what we're doing is we're passing this observable. So it's a cold observable that's being passed into this function along with the success and error handlers. And um, so what's happening is we're creating a new zone with the properties. Like so, the, the zone properties contain all of the user-specific stuff. So uh, if I go back here, um, oh, the context, yeah. yeah. Um, so basically, and this it gets uh, modified a little bit, but th this is the main thing that gets saved in the zone, um, and then so it's basically just a. Um, the request object, but just normalized a little bit. So some some values taken out of the request object that comes from Express, and then put into you know a more simple object, and then that's passed into this object, that essentially gets set in the properties of the zone. And so then you run the zone with these properties, and then which means basically just subscribing to the observable, which is the actual processing of the request. That makes sense. Yeah. And I can dive into the processing of the request. So so for processing the request, um, now this is, this is realize that like with what I'm talking about here, basically I took the approach of having expressor, or well, and, sorry, Restify in this case, the, the, the server-based framework basically do the minimal. So I'm not, I'm basically, like I mentioned earlier, taking, I'm taking over for basically the, the middleware, um, and I'm also taking over for everything in the um, request processing itself, including routing. So in uh, this, a bunch of to-dos, obviously, for different things, but um, there's basically, I create, my, create our own service lookup. Like, essentially, this is our own kind of API routing here, um, where it gets the target based off of the URL, and then uh, here it's using that main injector, the root level injector to get the target service. So every, every single URL is mapped to a particular service. And then it, it simply instantiates the target service. Um, so in essence, this is like, this part is um, the angularized or <laughs> DIized or, or whatever uh, version of doing routing for the API, or at least the, the way that we kind of implement it. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And, and you know, it's similar to like .NET MVC type of approach, right? Where it's taking the URL, resolving to like a controller and, and, and getting the instance of it, sort of. Yeah, no, I think that's probably a, a good, um, somewhat similar uh, thing. So this all works great, um, super awesome. I think the if I was to mention uh, the one, we we'll be able to think of other ones too. But but the the one thing that is a slight annoyance that we're trying to think about is that um, it gets to be annoying because this isn't all one repo. Like this is like multiple repos. Like um, in in this uh, sidebar here. So like each of these is its own repo. Um, you know we have. I only have a couple, uh, one app and one backend here, but we actually have a couple different backends, a couple different apps. Um, so, like, the code base is, is fairly substantial already, and um, a lot of these libraries, there's a lot of dependencies among each other. The one annoying thing is, is like, essentially, when you're in development mode and you do have to update stuff across packages and across uh, repos, and this has... I, I guess uh, is a normal thing with larger development, but specifically it gets to be a, a slight annoyance with DI because um, there is a bug that's currently in, um, and I probably can't uh, recreate it right now without some pain, um, but uh, just as a forewarning, I guess, is that when you are using DI across 
multiple uh, packages and you're trying to uh, locally test them, what you run into is that like the D DI requires that the token is the same, right? That the, that the thing that you're passing in to the providers in up here when you actually resolve it. So like this array, the actual class, the thing that's being used as the token in these providers has to be the same exact thing when you actually, I were to go to another class and go to, okay, so this is, it has to be the same exact thing as th these tokens here. And what the thing you can run into is that like, let's say, you know, I'm um, NPM linking to another project, even though if both this library and the thing I'm linking to use a third library that um, they both use technically the same version, but they are different because they, the instance of it is in their own node modules. Like, so uh, let's say for log adapter here. So like log adapter for this current code would be in, you know, the um, if it's from, uh, actually this isn't a good example because it's the same project. Let me bring up one other thing. Um, Yeah, we could definitely do a full show on mono repo versus individual repos. Yeah, That's what we've been dealing with lately and trying to decide on which way to go. So, so this one is like so. HTTP Manager here is from this other library. So this is a completely separate uh, library, right? And my, my point is like, if you're npm linking this, the actual even though it looks like the same class, it's actually a different class because it's some it's um and I think it's something that they're actually trying to fix in. Um, uh, at least in TypeScript, you sometimes get a compile error for this, and then for DI, you definitely have an issue sometimes if you aren't careful that the thing that you're you're putting in your provider is not the same thing. So the workaround for this is that when you end up npm linking, you just have to make sure that if you're going to npm link, that everything is npm linked at the same time. Like you can't; everything has to point to the same um, the same linked instances. Otherwise, if you don't, if something is pointing to, you know, its own node modules, um, a local one, and then the other thing is, is pointing to an NPM linked version, then those are actually going to be two different instances and your DI is going to break. Um, so it's a really annoying small thing that we've figured out how to get around just by making sure that when we do local development and we have multiple packages, multiple repos that we're working with, that we have like a, a top level build tool that will just, okay, we're, we're, we want to NPM link, then we'll just NPM link everything all together at the same time. Does that make sense? Yep, yep. And actually, oh, and the one thing with that too, is like NPM linking all of your local projects, but also um, TypeScript has an additional weird thing with uh, RxJS that it will, um, it, it, it'll just, because this is a longer explanation, but just really quick, it, because um, Rx has some private members, it actually, um, when you are NPM linking, um, and, and I'll put in the show notes the, the link to this particular TypeScript issue, but uh, when you're NPM linking with Rx, then it ends up um, causing a problem because of some bug in TypeScript that they're trying to fix with um, not recognizing uh, whenever you have a private value between your npm linked thing and your non npm linked thing. Uh, so again, the, the the solution there is just making sure that like for Rx in, in specifically, then when you are npm linking, you npm link Rx in every single project that you have. Cool. Well, we're getting close to the top of the hour. Um, <laughs> Hey, so really quick, this um, so if we're talking about writing these classes and stuff, and, and I notice here what you got on the screen here, we got this, you know, I create a class to do some service, and we've got the we're using the at injectable decorator right to specify that it can take in stuff in its constructor, and so we're doing these same kind of things we're doing in services in Angular for the client side, um, and then um, 
don't know, can you pop that code back up real quick of where you register all those at the very beginning with the injector? Um, so like how, to, if we want to just do, get started right away and say, we're going to grab some classes, we're going to provide them to the injector, and then we want to just scaffold this thing up, you know? Um, what did that look like again when we create a new injector? Yeah, so one thing with this uh, to, to be aware of is that this injectable is not the same as the Angular injectable. Like one thing that actually I um, fixed over time is that for a lot of the libraries, you actually don't need to include Angular at all. Even though we're using dependency injection, you actually don't need to include it in some of your libraries. Um, and the reason is that the, the Angular injectable doesn't actually do anything. There's th this this um, decorator like literally has nothing in the implementation, like the Angular injectable. Um, all that it does is that whenever you have any type of decorator at all, and as long as you have in your, as long as you have this reflect metadata, what will happen is that um, your constructor right here, where you have these classes, it will make sure it TypeScript, it's TypeScript. It's a TypeScript specific thing that when TypeScript compiles, it'll make sure that these classes are added in the compiled uh, TypeScript code. There's, um, uh, actually, let me just take a look at it really quick. Um, so, so doo -doo -doo. okay, for, This is it. So this specific function call in the compiled JavaScript code is a result of the fact of having this injectable here. So um, by knowing that, I knew that uh, you know I basically I could create my own decorator uh, for this. So um, it's. Basically nothing. I mean, it, it's uh, class decorator, which is a generic thing that, that we have here, but um, it doesn't do anything. But it, ena it enables TypeScript to be able to um, record this, which enables Angular to key off of this and then actually do the injection. Um, and then to get to your last question, Justin, uh, it's basically right at the top of, e when you're either doing a batch program, like a worker process, or an API, it's important that one of the very first things you do is use the reflect injector, resolve and create, and you pass in an array of all of the providers. And then you basically use that to get the initial, um, in my case, server, which you know this will kind of go down the stack and make sure that um, the, the uh, tree of dependencies and make sure that everything is instantiated correctly. Um, and then just go from there. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So then at that point, we've kind of um, set up our stuff, the line 11 there, and then we we call the initial one we're going to use, and then everything else from there just flows as is. We just start using our code, and we're kind of good to go, and it's going to resolve everything for us from there. Yep. Yep. Definitely. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, this is uh, definitely uh, interesting stuff. I think that, um, you know, for us, we, we did a lot of exploration with node for the server side and same sort of reasons you're talking about in terms of okay we've got full stack people and we want them to be doing the same kind of things and not context switching across and then we started looking at some of these you know third-party libraries and, and using that and what did that mean in this pattern of okay well are we into promises versus this approach and that sort of thing and then we kind of fell back into going well this how about we just do like net on the server side and stuff but um this is what you're showing here is pretty pretty exciting. Kind of got me thinking, like, oh man, I kind of want to be in that world again. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I dip my toe in certain things as well. Like, let's say the observable thing. Like, I, I at first wasn't 100% all observables. I was, you know, eh, like, is this going to be more of a pain that's worth? And and some of the concerns that, that you brought up. Um, but I think I just became more and more bullish over time after starting to use it more. That like. It's just there's a lot of power in simplification. There's a lot of power in kind of reducing overall complexity and, and kind of focusing in on a specific set of things, leveraging those, especially when there's like little downside to the uh, to the alternative. Um, you know, if if it works and 
um, you, you, you gain, gain those benefits and it's a simpler thing, then I don't know. I, I think it's a big win overall. I'm just curious when you're going to open source this whole framework. You <laughs> <code>. <laughs> uh, I know I'd open sourcing. Uh, the, the, I'll be, I'll tell you what, after we, the, the code that I just showed you is not actually in, uh, well, actually, no, it is in production, but um, we don't have our, our publicly facing stuff. It's, it's all internal right now. Um, I think that's like the, the litmus test for me. Once like the public is ac actually using this and we have like the, the bigger loads on, on the, the stuff that we're building, then uh, it's ready for prime time and, and uh, certain parts of this can definitely be kind of extracted and probably at the very least uh, something that can be shared to uh, like the, the patterns and everything like that for sure. Yeah, I just see these same patterns that you did that, you know, I actually just did. And, and you know, I know that everyone else is doing over and over and again. And uh, I, I, you're using, you know, a lot of these, like, latest and greatest, you know, methodologies around, you know, observables and streams and things like that. And I think that, yeah, that would be awesome. Definitely. Definitely. Look forward to that. <laughs> All right. Well, let's wrap it up. Let's do our picks. Um, Jeff, you got some stuff? Yeah, yeah. Um, so a couple things. First is that um, I, I've mentioned this on uh, one of the other podcasts I did, but I am starting a new local meetup group uh, for AI and that I'm really excited about. Tonight is actually the first uh, meeting that um, I'm actually giving a first talk for. Um, that should be cool. But the, the the reason why I'm kind of bringing it up in this context, because I'm not imagining that most people listening are from Boston per se, but we are trying to use this meetup as a way of generating a lot of interesting content about um, developing intelligent applications that we'll be sharing kind of with everybody. So if you go to bostonai.org, um, it's really rudimentary site right now. It's, it's pretty junky. But um, over the course of the next couple months, uh, there's going to be some amazing stuff that we're putting out there. Um, you know, both the videos from all of our meetups, but also uh, blogs, podcasts, a bunch of other stuff from a variety of different contributors in the local community. So definitely uh, looking forward to that. And then my other pick is I watched an awesome talk as I was kind of preparing for this talk. I, was, I usually like to get inspired like watching other like great speakers. And if you have you guys ever heard of Gary Bernhardt, um, he's a uh, he, he's given a bunch of uh, great talks. He he was actually gave the original uh, Watt talk. Like so so uh, so shy uh, shy's ng Watt talk was actually a take of riff off of Gary Bernhardt's uh, JavaScript Watt talk, um, which is hilarious. So you should you definitely watch that. Maybe I'll, I'll pick that as well. But um, a more recent talk that Bernhardt did was. Uh, the birth and death of JavaScript, where he goes through a timeline of JavaScript from 1995 to 2035, and uh, it, it's very funny, very funny. I, I definitely uh, he has a very great, uh, I mean, he's a great speaker and, and uh, very uh, subtly um, whimsical. So definitely check that out. That sounds awesome. That sounds awesome. All right, uh, Austin. Yeah, so I got two picks. Um, uh, the Ultimate Angular team, uh, Todd Mato's gang, uh, recently put out a new AOT loader for Webpack uh, in Angular 2. It's um, it's pretty nice because you can actually use this, you know, a lo the loader that you use right now, um, you typically want to turn it off during, um, while you're in development mode and things like that. You can actually run this loader and it's super fast, optimized while doing in, in development. So that's called Ultimate Angular AOT loader, it's still in beta. I think it just came out like today. And then another thing that I had was um, this project called Shapeshifter. Uh, I'm really into like SVG and, and data viz and stuff like that. And um, I'm always looking around out there for this type of stuff. Shapeshifter is like an SVG path morphing animation editor. And the really cool thing about it is it's built in Angular 2 as well. Um, so it's really cool, a uh, little, tool that if you like to, you know, mess with, you know, animations and SVGs and things like that, you should check it out. And it's got built in Angular too. So or Angular. Built in Angular. 
<laughs> nice, nice. All right, well, I got a couple picks. Uh, one is the Microsoft Cognitive, Cognitive Services. Uh, they offer some APIs uh, through Azure type stuff that um, to do things like face recognition on images and things. Um, several other things is pretty cool. You can, a little costly, but hopefully that'll go down, but you can send in images and it'll give you back JSON data that tells you where the square of the face is located in that image, multiple ones. Um, coordinates of all the way down to like eyebrows and eyes and even depict things like whether they're smiling or whether they have glasses on or not. Um, so it's kind of cool that you can leverage that and get some data off of, you know, user loaded images and stuff like that and start doing some processing and things. So that's pretty cool. Um, then my other pick, I'm going to throw in there uh, TS-Node because we talked about it a little bit here uh, on the show and I'm, we're using it here, um, that, that ability for to write uh, and execute, you know, Node, service stuff by just calling your TypeScript files and, and running it, not having to do the transpile step and doing the in-memory. So that's ts-node. You guys check it out if you haven't seen that. So that's all I got. Um, thanks a lot, Jeff, for coming on and uh, exploring this world of dependency injection on the server and sharing us with some stuff that got the code. Uh, it looks really, really interesting. I uh, definitely want to pursue more of that and check it out. Uh, so thanks for joining us on that. No problem. Uh, glad to join you. I had a lot of fun. Cool. And then uh, next week we've got uh, animations in Angular. Matthias is scheduled to come on and, and show us some stuff in there. So that should be pretty cool. Tune in next Tuesday. And thanks, Austin, for being on the show as well. And everybody have a good one. We'll catch you next week.